Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Flying Sage podcast. This is your host, Michael Oliver. Today's episode will be a special one, as I'm not going to be interviewing anyone in particular. Instead, we are going to be sharing audio from a recent expansion seminar we hosted here in Vancouver, BC. For anyone that does not know, we host about five to six events in person here in Vancouver every month. Some of these events include integration circles, cold plunges, and weekly ceremonies featuring different facilitators offering everything from breathwork to yoga to music therapy to brainwave workshops. Each month, we host a larger event which we call an expansion seminar. These seminars typically aim to bring together a diverse panel to focus on different topics related to psychedelics. These are our largest events and we really like to put an emphasis on socializing and networking for those that attend. Today, you will be hearing the live audio from our most recent seminar, which focused around the topic of perspectives on psychedelic guiding. We were lucky to be joined by four different speakers, Mark Hayden, Aga Posavska, Vana Dipanandaman, and Damien Kai Norman. In our discussion, we covered three main overarching topics, which included problems, methods of practice, and stories of transformation. In particular, we talked about being trauma-informed, proper screening, the great therapist syndrome, cancel culture, the overbonding problem, what psychedelics are useful for, the concept of an inner healing intelligence, how to create intimacy with psychedelics, as well as sharing aspirations for the future of guiding. Each of these panelists added a unique perspective to the conversation, and I am really thrilled to be able to share this with you here today. So without further ado, here is the panel conversation with Mark, Alga, Vana, and Damien. All right. Hello and welcome everyone to the Flying Sage Expansion Seminar. I think this is our fourth expansion seminar that we've done. Today we have a really special event focused on psychedelic guiding. My name is Michael. I'm the founder of the Flying Sage and I just wanted to share a little bit with you about the purpose of the event and also share with you a little bit about um, the lovely humans that we have here to share some of their perspectives today. Um, but before getting to that, I just wanted to share some gratitude. Um, and first and foremost, thank Damien and Nemesis for hosting us here in this beautiful uh, space. Um, this is, I think, the fifth time that Damien's opened up uh, the space for us to do an event here. So super grateful for that. Damien, thank you so much. Really, really appreciate it. And then I also just wanted to quickly thank some of the volunteers that have helped today too. Uh, Laura over there, Taylor at the door who checked you guys all in, my sister, and a few other people that have just helped to really make the event happen in the back and also today. So thank you everyone. I just wanted to let people know about the vendors that we have too. So we have House of Origins Apothecary. Maybe you can give a wave at the back there. So she's going to be selling some beautiful um, things up there with House of Origins, and then next to her, we've got Flying Sage offering a couple different brands as well. We've got uh, Lumina Tea, Moment Mushrooms, Soul Snacks from Soma Heart, and a few other things too. And in particular, we've got books for sale today uh, by Mark Hayden, uh, the Manual for Psychedelic Guides. So if you're interested in learning more about some of the topics today that we touch on, that's one book that you could check out, and we've got a bunch of copies back there. So uh, that's pretty much it for logistics. Um, there's a bathroom just over there if you haven't found it already and free coffee over there. And so, yeah, today we're here to talk about perspectives on psychedelic guiding. The psychedelic renaissance is here, and there is so much happening so quickly. It's so important for us to develop really safe and effective frameworks for guiding, and also to bridge the underground and the above-ground spaces together. And that's one of the primary motives and 
themes that the Flying Sage has had since we've focused on community building has really been to try and bridge these two spaces. And so I'm really grateful and excited today to have this panel here, because I think that the different perspectives that you each bring really achieve that. We, we have a different perspective from different spaces. So thank you all for being here and offering your, yeah, your wisdom and perspectives. I wanted to first just get a show of hands. Um, we want to just kind of sense out the room and see who is from different uh, sectors, what sectors people are from. And so I was curious if people might be able to help me out in raising their hand if you identify with being a practitioner of some sort or a guide. Okay, awesome. And let's see, maybe do you identify as a therapist? And what about a physician? What about someone who's uh, seeking a psychedelic experience? <laughs> Is there anyone here that identifies with working in the underground space? That's a good question. I think just define it as you will in your own mind, whatever resonates, whatever resonates to you. Um, and then the above ground. Okay, beautiful. We just wanted to get a sense, especially for our speakers too, so we know who, who we're kind of talking to today. So I'll just share what our intentions are for the panel, and then I'm gonna hand it over to each of you to yeah, introduce yourself a little bit, and then I'll help jump us into some questions. Um, so our intentions today are really to identify some cautionary pieces. Um, so what are some problems that we're facing as a community of practitioners? And next, we'd like to discuss some methods of practice. So in pra like practically, what are some um, best practices for psychedelic guiding? And then finally, we wanted to explore some stories of transformation and also focus on some themes of building community. So those are kind of the three themes that we're generally going to hold for today's discussion. And we're going to start with the first one there being the cautionary pieces. But before we get into that, I'd love to just briefly introduce um, everyone here. And then I'm going to pass it to you each to give more of an introduction of yourself. But um, we have Damien Kai Norman here from Soulful Somatic, who's a breathwork practitioner and a soulful, soulful embodiment practitioner, really good friend of mine and someone I really look up to. Uh, we have Aga here, who is from Soma Heart, and she is a practitioner herself, multiple different medicine modalities, has a big background in nutrition, and yeah, as someone who's been working in the space as a psychedelic guide now for, for almost a decade or more than a decade. Uh, here in Vancouver, and so yeah, super grateful to have you here. Uh, next to Aga, we have Mark Hayden. Mark Hayden is was the executive director of Maps Canada for 10 years and created Maps Canada. Someone that I've worked closely with uh, during some of my time there. He's also uh, adjunct professor at the University of British Columbia uh, for the School of Population Health, and he also currently works as the clinical supervisor for Chi Integrated Health, as well as. Um, works with SciGen as well, which is a clinical manufacturing company and an organization called ClearMind as well. So thank you, Mark Hayden, for being here. Uh, the man of many hats. And then over there we have Vana, who is here um, working, who currently works with Conscious Mind Clinic and is a practitioner herself, uh, has a background in nursing, which I think is such a beautiful perspective to bring to this event. And um, yeah, I'm really grateful to have you here, Vana. So I'm just gonna pass it along to each of you to maybe add on to that. You can share a little bit more about yourselves, um, anything that you wanna kind of focus on for maybe stuff that's relevant for today's conversation, and then I'll bring it back and we'll start with some questions. Does that sound good? Yeah, okay, over to you, Damien. Thank you. Yeah. Hello, everyone. Uh, lovely to be here. Lovely to see so many familiar faces and new faces as well. 
Um, yeah, so a bit more about me. I actually come from a professional dance background. That is my kind of my base, my foundation, and informs a lot of my practice today. Um, yeah, from there, I went into breathwork. So I have two different breathwork certifications underneath my belt. I am a certified counselor uh, through a two-year professional diploma program uh, and have the eligibility to become a registered therapeutic counselor. Um, yeah, I'm also in, currently in the Somatic Experiencing International training with Peter Levine and really loving that work. I'm in my second year and really bringing the focus of somatic therapy and trauma to my, my practice. And in particular, that's my, my focus, my desire to bring forward uh, in this conversation is how do we um, correlate trauma and the nervous system to psychedelic work and actually really understanding that there are direct correlations between what happens in the brain um, through breathwork experiences, through connections to our nervous system and the same that happens in psychedelic experiences. So that's kind of the lens I'm wanting to bring forward and excited to yeah, talk more about that. Thank you so much. Hello, my name is Aga. I'm with Soma Heart, my other partner, Deus over there. It's good to mention him. We work in tandem. Um, he was supposed to be in Bali. That's why he's not up here with me. Travels changed. Um, yeah, I wanted to just correct. I have not been facilitating and leading for 10 years. I've been in the realm of psychedelics for 13 years as my own personal journey, but I started facilitating five years ago. Um, so working with mushrooms in mostly in a group setting in a ceremonial, um, I don't like to use the word shamanic, but um, using an, um, the lens of animism. So really based deeply rooted in spirituality and where spirit and science meets. Um, so working with the mushroom, working with 5-MeO combo and breathwork as well. Um, and I'm really passionate, uh, yeah, about bridging that world of spirit and science. Uh, my journey started in my early 20s, 20 in, in Peru, in Ecuador with ayahuasca and Wachuma and watching the Shipibo and the Kuran and the Kofan and introduction to um, ceremony, how important ceremony is and where these plants come from. And in that world also seeing the severe corruption and how not to facilitate ceremony. That has l informed a lot of my practice. I've seen um, a lot of darkness, actually. So when I came to facilitate, um, bringing in more of that psychotherapeutic model and really bridging shamanism with psychotherapeutic um, modalities. Uh, so that's kind of the lens that I work with. Instead of talking about me, I'd like to talk about us. I really appreciate when our community gathers. Specifically, if you just wander around listening to the conversations, what you hear is a complete level of honesty, self-disclosure, and warmth that is actually quite rare in any community that I've ever participated in. So I would like to appreciate you guys. Thank you. Hi everyone, I'm Vana. Um, I'm a registered nurse. I work at Conscious Mind Clinic and I also work at Therasil um, as the intake nurse there. And I came across this path many years ago um, when I was working through my own um, depression. And I had no knowledge of psychedelics when I came across it and I actually thought it was a party drug and I was like, uh, why would anyone do that? Well, they fell into my laps, they found me, um, and I answered the call, and I'm really grateful because I'm still here. And um, because of that, I really want to pay that forward, because um, there's a reason, I guess, I'm still here, and we're all here. 
And uh, so yeah, I started my journey down that. Um, before that, I was working a lot on healing for about 20 years um, using different modalities. And it's almost like when I got introduced to the mushroom or the mushroom introduced themselves to me is when everything up here became embodied and it created a major shift in, in every single direction of my life and it obviously shattered everything and at the same time I got to rebuild. So I'd like to help people um, find their own way in this path and I'm, uh, I have a lot of people in the underground space and um, the above ground space and I think there's room for all of us. I don't think that psychedelics should be relegated to simply just clinicians and um, so it'd be great to find a way how to move this forward where we can all participate in a very safe manner. Um, while not pushing it out of the realm of the non-clinical setting. Um, even though I am a clinician, that's how I feel about it. And um, yeah, I'm really grateful to be here and grateful to be here with the panelists. So thank you for... All right, so before this talk, we prepared and we met together as a group and we kind of just discussed what are some problems that we are facing and we kind of listed a bunch of them and I have them here, but we're going to kind of go with the flow and see what comes up. I thought maybe a place that we could start would be training. Training is kind of at the foundation of a lot of the work that's happening now with psychedelic guiding. There's all these new types of trainings coming out and everyone has a different perspective on what training needs to look like. And so I'd love to just maybe pause for a moment and invite each of you to just think about this idea of training. And... Yeah, maybe it, thinking about what are some pieces of caution that arise in your mind when you think about this and, and where you see the, the training atmosphere uh, evolving right now in the psychedelic space. And so if anyone feels called or has a thought that comes directly to mind, I'd love to invite you to, to go first. Mark Hayden. Instead of talking about training. <laughs> I was part of a discussion recently <laughs> that partly promoted the cautionary voice that observed that in psychedelic research and in legal clinics, adverse events are going up. And they're going up quite substantially, specifically with people that come with a depression diagnosis. And by adverse I met events, I mean often suicide attempts. So. That is a very cautionary thing to start to think about. And the reason why we believe, and many people believe, is because the expectations are so high. The media attention to psychedelic healing has been huge, and we need to tone it down a little bit. You know, the enthusiasm has been out there, and specifically what I heard from the hands who were raised here is there's a lot of very informed people in the room. And so I think it is up to all of us to be quite cautious about how we talk about psychedelic healing because it's very easy to be evangelical. And there's a huge downside of that if expectations are too high and people's expectations are not met when they show up as a patient of our services. And, um, and quite frankly, it's really, really harmful when people don't get healed by the medicine. So partly we need to be very cautious and we need to train people for that, says he going back to Michael's. Can I follow that tangent? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I really appreciate this perspective, Mark, and I think something that I'm really coming more into awareness of and curious about myself is noticing a lot of clients who come to me right now are actually um, dysregulated 
after a psychedelic experience. And a lot of my work right now is how to, uh, yeah, regulate one's nervous system after they go through such a journey. And so this cautionary piece I think is important to address. And my curiosity is what does it look like to prime one's nervous system before going into such an experience? Um, and again, I think breathwork is an incredible modality. Somatic therapy processes, ones that are, are not inherently uh, focused on the mind or narrative, but that address the unconscious uh, experience that will come up during a psychedelic journey. Um, and the, I, I suppose, ability to, this is a, an interesting piece, but I guess the ability to actually trust and let go, which is hard to do if you're not comfortable and safe in your body, if you don't have that foundation of safety to do so. Right, so what does it look like to prime our nervous systems and bring that into uh, a training modality would be a curiosity I have. Yeah. This, this is kind of training, but mm. <laughs> I'd say the, there's a naivety with new guides, maybe not practitioners, people who maybe have sat with the mushrooms once or 5 m which is so prominent in 5-MEO right now. Someone sits with the medicine and they're like, this is transforming my life. I want to be a practitioner. And then, you know, they do a course and they're like, now I'm a practitioner. I know how to light the pipe. That is the easiest part. Lighting a pipe does not make you a practitioner. You know, serving somebody mushrooms does not make you a guide. There's so much more to training that can't be put into a weekend. It's like learning about the nervous system, doing your own shadow work, learning how your, un, your unprocessed stuff will be projected into the space as a facilitator, as a guide. And then there's also that naive excitement of like, this is what worked for me and my experience was so good and I love love. I just have to know because it's Bufo, it happens a lot in this space. And I just want to share this loving experience with everybody. And then you talk up the experience to your best friend or your partner or your wife and they come in and have a traumatizing experience. It was not what you promised and you're the one to blame. And then you don't know what to do. You're like, I thought this was love. And what you're doing is you're projecting your own experience onto somebody else. So th there's a huge caution there with any medicine that you're being excited to, to work with about with its potentiality of healing is you know, to watch out for that excitement and that naivety. And I think it's really, really um, prominent in the, in the space right now. And for training, when people ask me, um, wh where do you go for training? I'm like, ah, I don't know. I, it was my 13 years of experience of being in the jungle, doing my own work, seeing how things were not done properly, going to breath, extensive breathwork training and being trauma-informed. I'm still not a psychotherapist, but I'm, I'm every day learning how to be more trauma-informed, how to work with the nervous system, to come back to the body. You know, there's, there's, there's so much. And in and, and my line of work, it's energetic too. So Reiki and, you know, the woo-woo stuff, speaking to the, speaking to the plants <laughs> and learning from the plants and the beings in the, in the subtle realms. So studying shamanism maybe, right? There's so many tools that you can put in your, your tool belt. And so, you know, one training, it's, it's hard to say, you know, what, what would be a, a good, where to go or what would be a good training, but there's definitely places to start. Yeah, which I'm, I'm a big fan of breathwork. When people ask, I'm like, breathwork, we have this amazing um, teacher who's no longer um, training, but Trevor Yellick of Numa Somatics, he had an incredible program that unfortunately is no longer running. But anyhow, that's my spiel. Thank you. 
I really feel happy being with this group because I usually feel like the dark thunder cloud that comes over psychedelics. Because, and I, I, I'm on, I've been on both sides. So of course, when I first I had my first journey with mushrooms, I was like shouting from the mountaintops. No one would listen to me because no one in my community was into psychedelics. And then <clears throat> I'm really fortunate that I really only had one, well, not one, very few magical experiences. Most of the other times I was kind of stuck in the darkness and I really got to understand it. And I've also had um, a really, really bad destabilizing experience with 5-MeO and um, almost didn't make it through that. And so because of that, I, I have a lot more caution um, as I work with these medicines and I refuse to even get involved in the facilitating space um, for many, many years um, until I became disillusioned with psychedelics and I was like, get this shit away from me because I just saw the darkness that comes from it. So I am really grateful for those experiences and I really appreciate the the... <clears throat> Uh, not the warning, but just be mindful, right? Being mindful of the practitioners we choose. And even with the trainings, there's a lot of trainings out there and they're all wonderful um, and providing theoretical knowledge is wonderful, but the experiential piece is an absolute must. One with the medicine, but outside of the medicine. I was very fortunate that I spent decades of my life not even knowing what psychedelics was because had I been introduced to psychedelics early on in my journey, I, I don't know what would have happened. I did decades of work in ver various other modalities before I went to psychedelics or before they came to me as how I believe um, they came into my life. So I think it's really important to be trained, someone that knows the medicine, that knows the theory behind it, knows like different clinical modalities they can work with. And on top of it, they've done their own work. They've worked with the medicine and they've also worked with their trauma. Otherwise, we become very dangerous when we're sitting across from someone because like everyone else said, we can project. There's so many different things that happen more than just projection, you know? And so um, being able to go through those experiences yourself and also knowing where your limits are and that's where I think someone, a, a good practitioner knows where they end and when to refer outwards. And that's something that I don't necessarily see a lot of in the underground community. It's almost like a lot of people think that we had a few trainings or we had a few experiences with medicine and we can handle everything that comes our way. And that's not the case. And so just knowing the limits is also really important along with the training and the experience. Um, I think one more piece I'd love to bring to the table, and I actually feel like Aga would have a lot of information to speak to here, but the two kind of like realms that I see for training would be either the clinical, right? So, you know, some sort of counseling training. I think there's a reason why in the above ground space, the people who are, you know, leading this charge are registered clinical counselors, right? Um, and in the underground space, my curiosity would be, what is your tie or the practitioner's tie, the facilitator's tie, to the medicine and to the traditional roots of said medicine, right? Um, for example, I would never dream of uh, facilitating ayahuasca, right? That would not be a thing that I would ever touch because I am not of the Shipibo culture, right? I am I'm not based in Peru, I'm not Peruvian or the other places that ayahuasca exists. But to be aware of that, that, that cultural lens, and also from that point of view, like if someone is working with a medicine that has particular traditions and cultural roots, how long have they spent you know, from my understanding, and again, I'm sure uh, the panel here will have more to say, but a Peruvian shaman of the Shipibo culture is like in that work for 30 plus years, you know, as they're serving. So something maybe to be curious about, that is a form of training in a very particular way, right? That is very distinct to a certain culture and tradition. 
Thank you all. So we're kind of staying on this topic of cautionary pieces. Um, bef before getting offering another topic, I just wanted to mention the, the focus of today's talk is on, on different perspectives on psychedelic guiding. So at any point, if any of you do feel like you might disagree or want to challenge what someone else says, I really want to invite you all to do that, just as a disclaimer. Um, so moving on to the next thing, I wanted to maybe bring in the topic of screening. So we've you've kind of touched on that a little bit, like the importance of really as guides, how do we screen people effectively? I'm curious if either any of you have uh, maybe some tips or maybe even some ideas around issues that you're noticing in the space on that front. Screen your friends <laughs> from experience. Screen your best friends, your mother, get them to fill out that 45 minute intake form that digs into all their deep dark secrets. Um, it's worth it because things might surprise you in this space and yeah from f speaking from our earlier years we w we had one ceremony where it was casual there's no such thing as a casual ceremony <laughs> casually <laughs> traversing your deep subconscious and your deepest traumas <laughs> it's, it's not casual so really like um that was that's something i would say with screening do it with everybody and and don't cut corners um ask the difficult questions if they can't speak about it to you in that conversation then they're not ready to go into a psychedelic experience where they might relive that fully um, and plus you need to be equipped to know can you even handle that right like what vana was saying is like um knowing when you're outside of the scope of your practice yeah If I think about all of the challenges that MAPS USA had, in fact, MAPS Canada as well, when things went wrong, often it was one thing. It was unscreened borderline personality disorder people. So if you're a therapist and you're providing the service and you don't know what that diagnosis means, you're gonna have a big problem on your hands. So let me, let me talk about that particular disorder. Now, admittedly, there's a scale. This is mild, moderate, and severe. And I recently had a chat with a psychiatrist who was planning on offering psychedelics to people with mild and moderate borderline personality disorder, BPD. And so he convinced me that those folks could be helped by psychedelics. I am not convinced personally. And people with severe BPD, are really challenging and they can be incredibly uh, harmful to you as a therapist. So if you think about what that means, what the diagnosis means, it, it's halfway between neurosis and psychosis is how the borderline, that's why the term borderline exists. And it's people that often have trauma histories and a huge attachment wound. And so what you offer them during the psychedelic experience is you feel the attachment wound beautifully. I mean, psychedelics, you feel incredibly close to people. And so the attachment wound is filled in a way that's never been filled in their lives. And then the experience wears off and they aren't healed. You know, often a, a history of chaotic relationships is probably the main diagnostic clue for somebody with BPD. But then they aren't healed and you have now done them harm. And the intense anger that goes on and on and can go on for years Psychedelics amplify everything, and they amplify that disorder quite dramatically. And if, you, if there's one piece of screening tool I strongly recommend people do, is to really think long and hard about how you'd screen for that particular diagnosis, because it doesn't end. You know, those, those folks can be um, seeking revenge for a long period of time after you finish treating them. Just a thought. 
I, I don't think I have much more to add than what was said, but screening is very, very important. And um, knowing which tools to use in the clinical setting, we do do extensive screening before we work with the medicine. And um, my, my biggest thing would be to maybe even um, in the underground space, using, uh, connecting with therapists, connecting with other people that know these disorders, know the mental health issues more than you do, and then even asking them for advice on creating screening tools that you can use um, that will be on par with that. Maybe you won't be able to uh, do much with the, the information if you don't have a clinical background, but at least you know where your limits are, you, at least you know how to involve um, people in their care. And the other piece that I'd like to add to screening is, and this is something that I've done uh, with people, is create case conferences for the client, like surround the client, especially as an underground therapist, you can ask the client if they feel com comfortable with the people in their, like, their care team um, involved. And if that's the case, if they feel comfortable, they have a good relationship with their physician, with their therapist, and they're willing to be um, tied into that, that could be a really safe practice that we can use um, in the underground space. For, for people that are working in the underground space, that could be a really safe practice that can help uh, cushion that patient or client. Yeah, I'd like to second that. Some of the the biggest red flags we look for is community. Are you connected with somebody who can support you? Besides a close friend who's done psychedelics once, I can easily talk to my friend. We always get people like that. They're like, oh yeah, I don't have a therapist, but my friend. It's like, no, 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 you need professional, a professional team around you. Do you have a, you know, someone to do somatic experiencing with you? Do you have a psychotherapist? Do you have a counselor? Um, that is like so mandatory so that they can have a, a team to help them integrate whatever content arises. Because as the guide, I mean, we might not be um, trained to deal with the content. Um, you're, you're there to safely um, hold a space for them to access that content. But after, you know, who do they, who do they have to go to with this, this thing that they now uncover? So as a practitioner, to take the weight off of your own shoulders, you're not responsible, solely responsible for that person's journey. They had need to take responsibility for their own pro process after. You can um, nudge and guide and, and network them, but yeah, it's a really, really big piece of are they resourced. A quick thought. People who are desperate and believe that you are the one are to be avoided. <laughs> I had one of those, yeah, I agree. <laughs> Practitioners who tell you that they can heal you uh, and yeah. they are the one because the medicine works through them and they are God. That's God complex. Avoid those people. Mark, I think you call that the great therapist syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> so it's interesting. In my book, I identify four types of people who should not serve medicine. And I used to run a clinic. I ran for I worked for Vancouver Coastal Health, and I ran a team of addictions counselors for close to thirty years. And often we'd have a challenge in our staff meeting, and the challenge was the therapist who shows up, and they are better than everybody else in the room. And that gets amplified with psychedelics, you know, the great therapist syndrome. And I think it's useful to talk about it. And the way I would talk about it is I'd identify my own great therapist. It's right here in the back of my brain. And then I would joke about it and I'd get everybody to confess. And then we, when it became a dominant theme in the staff meeting, I would say, I think that's your great therapist speaking. And please tone that down a little bit. So um, be cautious about great therapists.
you have to read my book. <laughs> well done. Yeah. <laughs> we have a question over there. The book is called Manual for Psychedelic Guys, and yeah, it's back there. Just want to give everyone a heads up. We are going to save a bunch of time at the end for questions, just so you guys know. We've got that coming probably at 8.30. Uh, so while on this while on this topic of problems, I wanted to maybe bring in this problem. There's two maybe we can visit. First one is around touch. There's lots of problems and difficulty navigating touch because it's such a touchy subject in psychedelic space. Um, also, and then an, a, a second problem would be recognizing trauma. And I know this is something that I think you could speak on um, maybe initially. But first, on that piece of, around touch, does anyone want to maybe speak a little bit to that? Yeah, I don't have a, a formulated thought, but I think it's a really, really important question. And, and there are so many sides to this equation, right? On, on the one hand, I would offer that again in terms of like a priming experience, for example. So if you're doing breath work, cranial sacral therapy, um, there are probably numerous other modalities I'm missing right now that would be very helpful for that priming of the nervous system. Touch is essential, right? There, and it's assuming, of course, that you have a therapeutic relationship, that there is consent, of course, um, those are essential. But then, yeah, once actually on the psychedelic journey, that's a much different story, right? And, and hard to, to say. I'd be curious to everyone's thoughts. The one that comes to mind for me, and I think is a pretty standard practice, is really allowing the journeyer's agency to come through. Right, So if they are reaching out, if they are explicitly asking for physical touch, right, and maybe at beforehand setting some guidelines or some agreements around where touch will be appropriate, maybe it's holding a hand or a hand on the shoulder or a hand on the belly to help regulate breath, for example, and, and having those agreements really clear and defined before an experience and on top of the piece of like agency actually creating permission for the journey to reach out. Some starting thoughts at least. It's interesting how touch goes wrong. And let's think about why. We're talking about empathogens. We're talking about medicines that give you a sense of connection to another fellow human being that if you've never done a psychedelic or anything like it, you've never had in your life. You feel incredibly bonded to this therapist in a way that you just, it's unimaginable before you've had the experience. And so you kind of manifest what are the ways of connecting with people and quite frankly, touch is one of them. So touch can be very, very easily integrated into the experience. In fact, touch can go wrong quite quickly when that happens. So I'd like to emphasize what Damien said is the idea that it's discussed in advance. In fact, I even recommend it's explicit. We will not have any sexual touching. What does that mean? So sexual touching is a certain type of touching, where you touch, how you touch. So being absolutely explicit as to what kind of touching is acceptable and what kind of touching is not acceptable. And it's interesting that you mentioned holding hands or touching shoulders. The, I'm involved with the Oregon Psilocybin Services Initiative and they're massively training therapists and that is the limit of the touch that they allow. And it's explicit, they write it down. You can touch people's hands, you can hold people's hands, you can touch people's shoulders. You cannot touch any other part of their body, period. So a lot of discussion, because it goes wrong, and it goes wrong quite quickly. And so being really, really explicit with people as to what the boundaries are when you start 
is a really good idea. I'll share, I guess, a personal thing. It took me many, many years, even with psychedelics, to allow or incorporate one, other humans around me, um, and then even just the involvement of touch. And that, because of that background, I'm very um, rigid around touch. And so the conversation is very explicit. And I think that's, like everyone has said, that's really important. And touching, and not <laughs> touching on, <laughs> um, touching on sexuality, touching on sexual touch, and the importance of having that and, if you have any discomfort around even having that conversation, maybe just take some time to think about what's going on internally for you, right? So that, that should be an explicit conversation you're able to have with the person sitting across from you, especially if you've worked with these medicines, depending on which medicines you're working with, um, there's going to be a higher involvement of um, the type of emotional connection that gets created. So you just want to be really careful about that and even understanding what is your, what is your experience with touch in your life? What has come your way? Has touch been harmful? Has touch been helpful? Do you have a good relationship with other humans in that realm? Just even just going back internally, see what your connection to that is. And um, having those open conversations is really important. And knowing what your comfort level is, even when a client asks you for something, even if it's not sexual, if you're not comfortable with that, you have to be able to, to say that as well. And that a lot of that could be, um, a lot of these conversations should be had beforehand. And then even in the unpacking of the experience, having these conversations, if you're gonna continue to work with this person, then you can just de um, develop a deeper conversation around this. Yeah, touch is also really helpful. <laughs> so uh, when Deus and I work together, we work in, in groups and we work with the mushroom. And the mushroom has this way of turning everybody into little children. And we become mom and dad. So I find it's really helpful to work in tandem, a male and a female practitioner, so that if you do need to offer, uh, you, you think touch would be helpful. And this is where in the intake form, you'd be like, OK, who? Um, the history, you know, is there a history with uh, physical, sexual violence with a male or a female or both? So that in the space, now I know, okay, my touch might actually trigger this woman or a man. So, you know, Deus, you go check, you go check on them. Um, and we have, we definitely touch more than shoulder and hand because we are more in like a ceremonial um more of a spiritual container rather than the clinical one. And it, in those moments, it's so beautiful when you can really read if someone's regressed and you can hold them like a baby, you know? And they're like, wow, mom never held me like this. And you're in that moment, you're re-imprinting something really powerful in their subconscious mind. Um, but it has to be done with, with great care because um, those moments can be so, so powerful. Um, you know, so many times, you know, just seeing a, a man be held by another man um, and crying and weeping and being held and seen. Um, it's, it's really beautiful when done right. Um, yeah, and I think that's something that, that comes with, with training, when to pick up the body cues of somebody, um, learning to re notice what their nervous system is doing to the response of your touch and really asking, who is this touch for? Why am I doing this? This is one of my teachers is, is stop and ask yourself, why am I doing this? Am I going to this person because they're crying and I think 
putting a hand on their back will make them feel better or is that just gonna make me feel better? Oh, thank God. <laughs> you know, can we let someone just stew and suffer without going over there and helping them and rescuing them? Sometimes they might have to um, be in that challenging experience. So really stepping back and asking, you know, who is this touch for? Really. An alternative is a life-size teddy bear. for more yeah me one last thing i'll bring forward and yeah again <laughs> recognizing how touchy a subject this is um <laughs> good god okay um so the idea that um similar to what aga is speaking to here something i'm curious about and that is addressed in my somatic exper experiencing training in particular is completing incomplete experiences right and this notion that for many people, when they've gone through a traumatic experience, what distinguishes that traumatic experience is a lack of agency. Uh, so a lack of agency, ability to actually respond appropriately from the person experiencing the trauma, and critically, the support that came after that trauma. Both those pieces are, are huge. So if a, if a child, for example, went through a so-called traumatic experience and then was properly held and supported, likely that, that trauma will not be as um, rooted in their nervous system, let's say, right? So when we, when we go through, again, an entirely subconscious experience that comes through with psychedelics, there is a potential in that space to have some emotional catharsis, to tap into a, a space where maybe we weren't fully supported previously, and now we have the opportunity to be by professional, skillful space holders. And what might it look like to create safety in being held in that moment? and how that can help complete these incomplete cycles in our nervous system. Just putting that out there, and again, a curiosity around what that actually looks like is really important for sure, and again, extensive conversation. Maybe we can uh, stay on that topic for a bit longer, the, the piece around trauma. Gabor Mate is, I'm sure, someone who a lot of you are probably familiar with. He just released recently a new book called The Myth of Normal, where he outlines and articulates the massive misunderstanding that uh, our culture has around trauma and the different types of trauma. And so obviously this is something that there needs to be a really uh, deep understanding of this when working with psychedelics. And what are some problems that you um, all have recognized around this topic? I'd be really curious to maybe hear some more. I'm sure Damien, you've got some initial thoughts right away and then maybe you can pass it down. Yeah, sure, I'd love to start. I was actually listening to uh, Walking the Tiger by Peter Levine on my way here and just, yeah, wonderful book and an incredible man. Um, yeah, just I'd love to start again with the piece of agency. Um, so so critically important and so important with psychedelics in particular, right? With with a, a breathwork practice, for example, which can induce similar psych uh, psychedelic-like experiences. You have the choice to stop breathing, like to stop the conscious breath practice. Not don't, don't stop breathing, but to stop the actual practice of the conscious breath, which will stop your psychedelic-like experience. You have that choice. When you're on psychedelics, you don't. You are now on the journey. There is no choice to stop this experience, right? That can be incredibly confronting, especially when you are someone who uh, is used to having control through your mind to have some sort of grasp on, on your reality, right? And so I guess the piece of agency that I'm curious about in this case is actually something that Peter talks about in that agency can look like options. And our reference point of what those options are are probably not as well defined or um, practiced for most people. And what those options I'm speaking to are, for example, vocalization, right? Our ability to, in a moment of, of 
of tension or confrontation or some sort of challenging adverse emotional experience, most people might actually just freeze and, and hold and resist. And that's, that's a very normal response. So how, again, my, my curiosity around trauma in this particular moment would be, how can we um, prime and attune a person to actually practice the unconscious languages of the body, uh, emotional expression, um, vocalization through our, our voice is massive. Movement, how can we allow movement to uh, play out certain motor functions that would normally not be allowed or, or permissible? Um, probably missing one here, but those pieces are actually really important to identify as options for agency when one feels like there are none, if that makes sense. So yeah, starting there. I think I'm going to take this conversation a little bit of a different um, direction, although I think it's really, I, I'm really grateful where we are in terms of like talking about trauma, talking about mental health. One of the things that I'm a little concerned about is how much we're starting to over-identify with our traumas. And although this is a wonderful space where we get to explore and express, and then there's also the other piece of becoming like I said, identified with it to the point of it becomes a part of your personality, it becomes a part of your identity. It is really hard to release something that you hold on to as yours. So that's the other piece of um, when we do speak about trauma, that's not who we are, right? And that's not that, that's what happened to us, but that's not who we are. And even having these conversations with our clients, with the patients that we're sitting across from, like the labels that we use to, 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 um, to talk about, like the DSM, I mean, th these labels weren't necessarily meant to be diagnoses. They have become diagnoses. And so they're a cluster of symptoms, right? And that's not who we are. So that's kind of where I wanted to take this part of the conversation because... Um, yeah, like it's great like to talk about all this, like the somatic experiencing, and that's really important to be able to resolve these symptoms within us. But um, we, we really, as practitioners, as just the space, just be careful about becoming too identified with the trauma. It's interesting thinking about what trauma is. So trauma can be from neglect. If you haven't had enough attention paid to you as a child or as an infant, you will feel a hole in your heart that needs to be filled. But it also comes from negative experiences. And in the world of maps, one of the things they did was reach out to veterans who had horrible experiences during uh, military situations, and then they would work with them around the healing practice. And what inevitably happens that can catch people quite unawares is the process of projection. Now. Most of you are therapists, you know what I'm talking about, but I'm just gonna put it into words. So projection is when you take something in your unconscious mind and you see it as happening outside of yourself. And psychedelics amplify that dramatically. So if I'm a person that has a significant trauma history and I show up in a psychedelic space and Aga is my fabulous therapist, I will see Aga as all kinds of things other than Aga. I will see her as my trauma projection, whatever that happened to be. Now, it's interesting, when people come out of that experience, it's often really disturbing for them because then I start to realize Aga is not my trauma experience and that she's actually a fellow human being and she is who she is. And so it's disturbing for me to have gone through that experience. So setting people up for the process of projection is really, really helpful so that you explain it in advance and afterwards during the debrief you say that was projection, it's normal, this is what happens and when people become skillful in the psychedelic space they can work with their own projections 
And you can set people up to do that. You can talk about eye gazing, and you set your noses 18 inches apart, and you look somebody in the eye, you're going to project. There's going to be an intense projection process that happens when you do that with somebody. So you can even, in the prep sessions, um, show people how, what it's like to project and how it works. You know, you put your nose 18 inches apart, you'll get, you'll get an experience. Just eye gaze, intense eye gazing will produce projection. And so then talk about what that is and explain it and normalize it and then debrief afterwards will help smooth the rough edges of that process over that can be very, very intense. Um, soundproofing in a room. People can start screaming, and they scream, 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 and they scream. And if you don't have a soundproof room, you got a problem on your hands. I don't have much. <laughs> yeah, I really love this conversation, and just grateful to be having it. Um, something that comes up for me in regards to what Ivana spoke to are um, the stages of trauma, from my understanding, my education. So. The first stage of that being safety and stabilization, right? Again, the, the foundation for any sort of therapeutic work, psychedelic work, is creating that safety and stabilization within the relationship, the rapport, the attunement, as well as within your own body, right? The second stage is actually the processing of that trauma. So again, that can mean numerous things, and will you likely encounter those things during a psychedelic experience? But the third stage is uh, what we might call post-traumatic growth, right? So recognizing that at the beginning of our, our trauma journey, identifying, having a label can be helpful. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm validated. This is a real thing that I'm experiencing. I can name it, I can point to it. This is, this is it, right? Um, but yeah, after a certain amount of time, and I think where psychedelics also comes in really beautifully is once you've processed that to a certain extent, yeah, there's, there's a gap, right? There's a gap between you and the trauma that happened. It's kind of scary, actually, to let go of that trauma. It's like, that, that's, that was my whole identity. That was my whole world, right? And so I think psychedelics, where it really shines, is actually creating uh, some distance, right? Uh, MDMA does this beautifully, from my understanding, and mushrooms, I, I mean, they all do it in their own way. But their ability to, again, like, see the trauma outside of yourself uh, can be incredibly empowering and scary. Um, and I think psychedelics shines in that space, just allowing that process to, to take place. Um, yeah. And just to expand the discussion, um, when you have therapists, when you have a group of therapists working with each other and you are working with psychedelics, some people are attracted to the field because they have had a healing experience with their own trauma histories. If they've done their work, it's fabulous because their ability to empathize with people is really, really high. If they haven't done their work, and they sit around the room, and they see everybody else in the room as being either victims or predators, you have a problem on your hands with your supervision. So maybe taking a step out now from more of the fine-tuned like therapeutic uh, problems that we might be witnessing, and more to the culture, the culture that we're experiencing through the psychedelic space, the psychedelic renaissance in general. Uh, one of the problems that we had discussed before this call was cancel culture. And we've seen this kind of happen in multiple different areas of the psychedelic space and just at large as well. It's definitely not, this isn't a psychedelic thing. It's like our culture is going through um, this piece now in a pretty big way. And so I'm just curious if anyone has any thoughts on that. Like how can we navigate that situation? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I'll take a look at my notes here, but I mean, when we're talking about cancel culture, it, we're, t we're talking about when people make a mistake, this, this is what comes to mind for me is like in the circles of 
practitioners and guides, how do we move from exiling someone and calling people out to maybe bringing them inwards and raising us all up together? I can start. Um, the first thought that comes to mind, and I'm, I'm not the expert on this, but I'd be curious, again, everyone else's voices, but um, something known as restorative justice, right? So this concept of like community accountability, right? Um, that we're not lone wolves uh, as any sort of therapeutic practitioner, but that we have communities like the Flying Sage uh, to come back to and use as a reference point, right? Um, and that if someone does make a mistake, can we, and this might be a really cool thing to explore with, within Flying Sage, can we have protocols to hold each other accountable? And as opposed to like this like blame or yeah, villainizing of a mistake, how can we create conversation and curiosity around what happened? And what are the next steps in resolving this, uh, this mistake, right? And maybe most importantly, how do we take care of the person that the mistake impacted? Probably most importantly, actually. Um, so those are some, some thoughts that come to mind at first. One thing that took me a while to recognize, and I'm wondering if anyone else had the same realization, is that in this space, whether it's the psychedelic space or the spiritual space, a lot of us enter it because of our own wounding, our own attachment wounds. And part of that can lead us to become avoidant. And so part of cancel culture is the avoidance of the actual conflict, avoidance of actually working through all of these issues because, probably because the people's nervous system is dysregulated. And just understanding where this is coming from and it's hard to have empathy when you're being canceled, but you know, just holding that space even for yourself if you're the one that's being canceled, um, canceled. And so the other piece is, yeah, what we what Damien just touched on is calling in instead of calling people out. Is how do we create a space where we feel comfortable enough to? Well, one, we have to deal with our own internal world before we can call someone in. And how do we create that? And it's through creating relationships, it's through creating these communities and these connections where we have a certain standard of practice when, when someone steps out of line or someone does something that we um, think is harmful, we have the entire community that we can rely on and then we can, like maybe certain people take charge um, and they're the ones that call call that person and have that conversation and then work with that person. Because the, op the, uh, the alternative is when we cancel someone is that they can actually go even deeper underground they become rogue and so when they become rogue then there's really no protection for anyone the person or the people that they're going to be working with so just keeping that in mind that actually canceling something doesn't actually get rid of it and anything in the dark is most likely going to grow and grow in ways that we don't even know how it's growing so that's another um, thought against cancel culture it was curious when I worked for Maps Canada, one of the roles I played was community complaints department. <laughs> and so if somebody had a challenge with a psychedelic experience with a guide, where do you go? And somehow my name would pop up and people would call me. And, and so I'd listen to both sides and essentially bring people together. So uh, I think when I, I'm 68 years old. I find the whole social media process completely bizarre, to be honest. I don't do social media. If I have an issue with somebody, I just talk to them. Keep it simple. Yeah, I'd like to speak to the mistakes because we're going to make them. It's inevitable part of learning. 
um, and that they're not a bad thing. And it takes a lot of humility to admit like, oh, yeah, I screwed up. Fuck, I'm sorry. And to be and to show and put that on display. And essentially that's what that is when we have a community like here who are loving and can hold us in that. That is a beautiful moment for repair. Because in relationship, there is going to be rupture. And what is incredibly healing is how we come together to repair. And it actually makes that bond stronger. And so we can do that you know, in a session, like I've, I've had a few oopsies and it's been incredibly shameful and luckily I have incredible mentors and friends that I can go to to be like, look at this thing that I did, yuck, I feel terrible and I'm shamed, I should never do this, oh my God, and like, it just spirals. But having a mentor go, no, no, you're human, honey, that's totally normal, therapist, that happens to, ther that happens to the best of us. And it was like, oh, thank God, I'm not a terrible human. <laughs> And so, you know, being able to be vulnerable and put that on display and then still be loved for it and, and appreciate it, it makes us stronger together. And then we can come up with better practices together and learn so that then the mistake I made, you won't have to make unless you really want to because you want to embody it. Um, but, you know. Potential mistake making. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's how we learn. So just taking the, the shame off of um, the, the mistake and, the, and being bad. Yeah. I think there's something really, really valuable here that I didn't think of, and that's like supervision. Like having supervision would be incredibly helpful for this whole process. Yeah, yeah and that's one thing. That's one thing I like to, to add is when you work in tandem, there is someone always supervising you, right? So it's not you one-on-one -on -one with somebody, so you're accountable for your actions and they can actually uh, support that. I have a large library of books, and there's one particular book that I keep using and referring to over many, many years, and it's called The Apology. And it's, I think, The Six Minute Manager or something. It's on Amazon, it's really cheap, it's just a discussion about what an apology means. Most people don't know what it means to apologize and what the actual seven steps of an apology are. It's a fabulous book, I'd recommend it. And to even go deeper, I, th I think this is also representative, representative of the, the nuclear families that we grew up with. Who here saw mom and dad make up after an argument? Or was it just slam the door and screaming and you know, nobody talked about it? No one resolved their problems. Nobody talked about their feelings. It's like, so how do we know how to do it? So avoiding it isn't gonna help fix it. So now as adults, we're, gonna, we're learning how to, you know, conflict re resolution, right? So it's very important. Yes, cancel, cancel culture. <laughs> <laughs> My dad never talked about this. All right, so I think we're gonna move away from the problems now. We've been kind of stepping out a little bit to talk about practices here and there, but I think that's the, kind of the next theme for us to focus on. Could be methods of practice if you're all open to that. And so we've got a couple of notes here, but again, we can kind of go with the flow. I'm curious maybe to start with this question, what psychedelics are useful for and what they are not useful for? So I don't know everything about psychedelics, but in, to my understanding, um, I, I love the mushrooms, you know, and for me, childhood developmental stuff. If there's stuff in the childhood that needs to be relived or repatterned, um, I think the, the mushrooms are perfect for that. Um, 
you know, not necessarily going to Bufor or 5-MeO, which is um, transcending the body and the ego, and there's no more I, so it doesn't really um, help you resolve childhood stuff. Um, so I'd like to open up the conversation of, you know, because, yeah, I, I get a lot of people who come and they have, this, this is my issue, and I think this medicine is going to solve it, where it's like, mm, not really. You might need breath work first. Right? Or you might need MDMA because there's just way too much fear in, and anxiety in your body. And if the mushrooms bring up a, a past experience, you might not be able to handle it. So I'd love to hear from, from the panel, you know, what kind of, um, I don't know, maybe medicine for what person in your experience? Like ketamine? I don't know much about ketamine. Yeah. I'm actually putting together a ketamine program now. And ketamine is the first legal one. So many people are using it, and it's an intense psychedelic experience. But it's not, I wouldn't be pulled to it, to be completely honest. I mean, it doesn't, the, what you're exploring often isn't your unconscious mind. Um, you have to set people up to have a therapeutic experience with ketamine in a way you don't with some of the other psychedelics. At the end of the day, when everything is said and done and all the stuff is legalized and everybody's using all the psychedelics, I actually believe that 3-MMC, 3-methylmethcathinone, may, may be one of the best. You know, it, it's like MDMA, but it doesn't have the loving component and it doesn't have the touchy-feely component. If MDMA is I love you, 3-MMC is this is who I am, who are you? So it's about a dissolving of boundaries without feeling love and promoting of really, really intense therapeutic discussions. I think the main thing I want to add to this is psychedelics is a tool. It's one of the tools. And for each person, different, just from my own experience and working with others, each, each psychedelic is going to be useful for different types of trauma, different, what, depending on what you're trying to work with, right? But at the same time, it's a tool. And so using it in isolation, I, I, I don't necessarily think on their own, they're, they, they are healing and they're very beneficial, but it's incomplete. It's like working with a hammer to do everything. And so just keeping that in mind and using it as one of the tools in the toolkit is really, really important. And as you work with all of them, I can't really say I'm, I find one more important than the other. I don't want to classify them like that. But as we work with them, both within ourselves and with others, we'll start to get to know them on an individual level, and then we'll get to know when to use what. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what I And then there's the issue of stacking, taking combinations, using the softness of MDMA to take the edge off of LSD is a whole different discussion. One thing I'd like to add is like bringing in the spiritual component of it. It's not just molecules uh, affecting brain chemistry. Like there's a spirit behind the mushroom and it's cheeky. <laughs> it's very cheeky. You know, ayahuasca has a spirit. She's the grandmother, Wachuma. And each spirit of that medicine will work in a different way with each person. Right, so if there's like a super rigid type A person who's like, mushrooms will won't do anything for them, <laughs> right? But if, if there's someone who comes in and is willing to do the work and they, they recognize that, they're like, yeah, I can work with this person. So recognizing that you and your personality and your constitution also affects how the medicine, the spirit of the medicine will respond, especially when working with, with the plants. Yeah, just one more piece I might add, and again, I'm not the expert here, but a curiosity I have is uh, microdosing. I saw, I'm not sure if it was the Huberman podcast perhaps, or some other like more scientifically based, um, 
yeah, uh, company. But they were talking about LSD as like anti, not anti-inflammatory, but anti-pain medication, like as, a, as an alternative, like at low doses, right? And they had a study of like people putting their hands into ice water and their ability to basically, yeah, keep their hands longer than people who had not done LSD. So I'm just curious about those effects as well. Like on, on smaller doses, how can we use psychedelics and particular ones uh, consciously, intentionally? Yeah. Thank you all. So I have a question here that I'm initially direct to you, Mark, and then open, of course, anyone else who wants to add on after. Um, how do psychedelics create intimacy in our lives? I, I think that's a really important discussion. I mean, there's a lot of discussion around curing various things and depression being number one and end-of-life anxiety. Those discussions are common in the literature. So if we want to get ahead of the game, I think talking about the impact on couples. If you want to do a conscious relationship and you want to use psychedelics to consciously develop your relationship with a partner, a fellow human being, what do the different psychedelics offer? Because all of them offer something different. You know, if you want to sit on the couch and you want to have a conversation with somebody about real issues, 3-MMC. If you want to lie down with somebody, MDMA. If you want to have a spiritual experience with somebody and go off into other realms and then talk about that later, LSD and psilocybin. If you want to have a spiritual experience where you're way off in other realms but you're able to talk about it, 4-H-O-M-E-T. So there's an endless list. And I, I think the discussion around how to do conscious coupling using psychedelics has really just started in our community, and I welcome it. I love my partner so much. <laughs> for, for those of us who have attachment trauma, um, it, it works amazingly to help us work through these things. It works amazingly to help us bring the walls down, have these conversations. At times, they act as glue for the relationship just because it's necessary if you're going through a lot of rough patches. And then at times, it acts as um, deepening the intimacy. I mean, you can argue both cases as deepening the intimacy, um, but it also helps us break free of unhealthy patterns that can keep us cycling around the same issue and just knowing when to use what. And also, the other side of it is um, I've had experiences where bonds got created in, in platonic settings bonds got created with um, psychedelics for me I, I like deepening bonds with them not necessarily creating bonds with them so also be, being wary of who you do these uh, medicines with because you can create bonds that may not have been created without them and so deepening those bonds can actually become painful only because without that particular element involved, you may have never connected with this particular person and it may not be quote unquote real. But um, yeah, I, I found it a valuable tool to deepen um, yeah, relationships. So what was the question? How do they connect? No, I, th I think they bring out authenticity. I think as a human Western culture, we have these masks on. We're so afraid to show ourselves to each other. So there's constantly a wall over our hearts. And then there's like an emptiness there. And I feel like, you know, we struggle. How do I actually, you know, express myself? Because I, I, mean, I think many, many of us are afraid of judgment or rejection. Um, 
And so it's like, how do I, how do I share myself? And then the other person's also like, well, what, what are they thinking of me? And oh, what do I say? Because I want them to like me. And we're just it's so in our heads about everything. And our hearts are blocked. And instantly, for me, I, I speak to the mushroom, and also MDMA does this, but mushroom is just, for me, it just gets me out of my head and into my body. And I'm like, no longer thinking about what this person thinks about me. I'm just like curious about them and excited to share myself. Almost like my childlike self comes online because my heart is open, that, that wall comes down and I'm authentic. And then authenticity becomes magnetic. And then it gives that person the permission to bring their walls down a little bit. And I don't know if, you, if some of you are shaking your head, but those moments where you make true authentic contact with someone, it's like, oh, wow, it's enlivening, but it's so rare because we're all talking about the weather, <laughs> right? And someone's like, how are you? Good, you know, like one octave higher, good. It's like, I'm good. It's like, I don't think you are. <laughs> You're just like looking at you is making me uncomfortable walking around with our social anxiety. But you know, when we really drop into our bodies and into our hearts and our authenticity, that, that creates connection. And I think that is, we're so starved of in this um, society. We're also lonely and that's, you know, part of the sickness of our spirit is we forgot how to connect with each other. So these medicines really bring us into our heart and where, where it's, um, where we're meant to be living from. So how many people in the half hour where we were circulating here had a remarkably self-disclosing conversation with a fellow human being? Yeah, yeah, I mean my experience of our community is we talk incredibly really with each other and that's because of these experiences. And I'll just add, it's so beautiful when you go into a group ceremony setting. A lot of people might be scared to go into group, but I love the small intergroup, intimate group sessions because in a sharing circle before and after, people share so openly that like, my best friend doesn't even know about this and I met you three seconds ago and I feel way more comfortable with you than all my friends. And it's incredible what happens in these spaces that your stranger, the stranger beside you, he maybe like said three words to is like knows you deeper than you know, your, your good friend. So yeah, they have an ability to, to create that connection even when um, we don't speak to somebody. Uh, I have two things percolating. Um, yeah, and recognizing it's a bit tender uh, for me, but I want to acknowledge that I think uh, psychedelics can be really uh, supportive for um, uncoupling processes um, and perhaps how you might reframe um, that process. I think that breakups are incredibly challenging, right? And we do not have the skills, like most of the time, I don't have the skills, I'll just speak for myself, I don't have the skills to navigate that, you know, um, consciously, it takes a lot of practice. And so I think psychedelics could, could uh, soften the edge and create, um, again, different options, right, of how that might look as opposed to the kind of scripted, societally driven narrative, right? Um, and, and, and then a lot of these I want to just challenge and maybe kind of bring in a bit of a devil's advocate is I think psychedelics can actually create inauthenticity. 
Um, I, I, I really love what Aga, Aga says, and actually Governor Mate talks about that too, right? Authenticity being the antidote to chronic illness or, or mental health and, and illness. And I think that psychedelics can also be misused or abused to the extent of inauthenticity, right? Um, MDMA comes to mind as an example of that for me personally, and this is just anecdotally, but seeing people who abuse MDMA and are only able to open their hearts and uh, connect authentically when they're on the substance, right? So maybe that being a bit of a, a gauge for you, right? Are you actually capable of revealing yourself, of connecting authentically outside of a medicine? If you're only able to do so on a medicine, I would bring some curiosity to that, personally. Thanks, Damien. So maybe focusing on one other topic point we have here on the community practice, or sorry, on the methods of practice before moving on to our, our third and final theme, I wanted to just bring into the conversation this idea of the inner healing intelligence and maybe speaking a little bit about that. What, that, what does that even mean? And how, how, how does that change how we approach healing in general? Anna, could I put this over to you first? This is something I talk about a lot, and of course my mind is going blank right now. Um, well, one of the things that uh, I bring to my clients' awareness, one is around expectation management. That's the very first thing I do with them. It's like, no, these do not heal you. I do not heal you. Nobody heals you. Not even a surgeon heals you. The surgeon just removes the blockages that are in the way so your body, your mind can heal itself. And that's one thing that um, I would love for all of us to own, that we have this wisdom. So some, one of the things that we talk about is trauma that gets passed down through intergenerational, tra intergenerational trauma. Well, there's also intergenerational wisdom. And we all have access to that. And we have access to it at all times. It's just learning how to access that. And if we can just remove the obstacles that are in the way, a lot of the stuff just happens on its own. We don't necessarily even need to know how it happens. And that's one of the, um, the questions I get a lot is like, well, how did that happen? I don't know. It happened. Just take it. You know, like we don't need to unpack everything. We don't need to dissect everything. And I think that's where we can get really lost with this because sometimes there's no words to describe, at least for me. I mean, I'm sure you guys may, um, but there's no words to describe the inner healer or the, some of these things that are happening. We like to be able to touch everything, make everything tangible, but it's just not possible. Right. And that's one of the things. And that I like to keep that mystery alive a lot of the times as we do this work. I like not being able to explain most of this stuff you know we all the things that we are labeling and explaining it's a very tiny tiny fraction of what's actually going on and yeah that's kind of what I'd like to leave this with and just know that that wisdom exists within us just as the trauma got handed down so did the wisdom so let's access that as well I did the maps training with Michael and Annie Mithoffer quite a few years ago now they're the lead therapists for maps in the States and what, what, the, what the training looked like is we'd watch videotapes for hours and hours and hours and hours. And every once in a while, they'd turn off the videotape and say, what would you guys do next? And we had about 15 very skilled, mature therapists in the room, and we'd have a spirited discussion about what we would say. And then we'd come up with our answers of what we would say next. <laughs> And Michael and Annie would look at us with great compassion in their eyes and say, you're all 100% and completely wrong. 
every one of you, the appropriate response is to do absolutely nothing. Or be there, like completely be there for the experience, but your words are not needed here. Your words will interfere with their inner healing intelligence doing what it needs to do and what they need to do. They know what their journey is. They know how to heal, and the more words you're using, the more you are believing that you're something that you are not. There's a lot that wants to be... Mm. Um, the inner healer, to me, is that part of you that is beyond the mind and beyond the ego. And you can tap into these spaces. I don't know if you've ever done like tension release exercises where the, you get into the animal body and it just shakes and the stuff, the energy just moves out. Um, it's the mind that gets in the way of energy movement, ego movement. So again, it's censorship. This is appropriate. This is not appropriate. This is shameful. This will cause anger, right? So we're, the ego is constantly censoring energy expression. But without the ego, energy moves and flows. So the human condition is, you we all forgot that I'm not Aga, I'm not this ego, I'm actually that timeless, infinite consciousness that is actually a spark of love or God or source or whatever word you want to give it. Some people can glimpse it in the 5-MEO experience when the mind is no longer online, there's still an awareness, there's still a presence. And that, inf that is an infinite intelligent force that is in this and orchestrating all of creation. We just got to get out of the way. And how, how do we do that? Because the, the mechanism of the mind and the ego is so strong. And there are modalities. Like, I love somatic experiencing because it's a body-centered practice that gets you into your body and listening to your animal body, which is smarter than your ego sometimes when it comes to processing emotion or energy. And, you know, there's an example of Peter Levine when they're doing studies of... Um, tranquilizing polar bears and the polar bear is running and they tranquilize it and they freeze it, they tag it, and then when the polar bear wakes up, it shakes and it completes its action and it runs away. They found that the animals that don't shake after a traumatic experience die. We are the only mammal that does not shake and that energy, that cortisol, that fight or flight, just <laughs> it shuts down, it's suppressed, and yet we continue living in psychosis and neurosis and chronic pain and depression because the ego is suppressing the release of that energy. So when we can do something like somatic experiencing or, or breath work or plant medicines that help shut the ego off just a little bit, the mind off a little bit, and you can tune into how energy wants to move, that is when the inner healer comes online. That is when your true self, and in yoga they have that, um, you know, that we are all that light, but the dust collects and we forget. It's not that there's no light, and we just gotta wipe the dust off. And so my favorite part of being a practitioner is helping people connect to the, their, that light. And I think as a practitioner of any modality, that is our number one job or role, is to get people in touch with that so that their own, they can do their own inner healing. We're not the savior, um, you know, we're just that, yeah, that guide that helps them get in touch with that. what she said. <laughs> also what she said. <laughs> okay, well, let's move on to our final theme for tonight, which we wrote down as stories of transformation and community building. So kind of maybe looking a little bit more towards the future, um, thinking about how can we, with integrity, build psychedelic communities and bridge spaces together and move forward. And 
yeah, in an integral way. I'll invite you both all to kind of ponder on that for a moment. And, you know, the first question I have on here is, is how do we build community that spans across the underground and the above ground? Um, I think different people have different thoughts on this, but I, I personally feel like it's so important to make sure that people that have been doing the work for so long are leading the way with some of the new policies and frameworks that are being developed. And that's just one, I guess, angle of the problem for me, but just curious what comes up for all of you when, when you think about that. And yeah, building a community with integrity. I just wanted, I feel called to bring your voice through here more. I'd actually love to hear more about what you think of community building, because you're doing an exceptional job at it. Thanks, Damien. Well, I, th I mean, I'll just share a few things, but I feel like I think we need to recognize the, the fact that there's gonna be a lot of overlapping communities. And also the fact that there isn't gonna be one community that appeals to everyone. I think it's not really realistic to try and achieve some sort of community that's gonna appeal to every single type of person. Um, different people will gravitate towards different communities, and that's beautiful. And I think we should, um, yeah, allow that to prosper in the way that it does. And I think regarding the underground and above ground piece, I think we just need to, people that are making decisions at the high level need to be inviting people in the underground to have some conversations with them. And I think just getting, sharing spaces like this, like events like this, I think are really important for that. Whether it's with the Flying Sage or with any other community that's um, in Vancouver or, or the greater Vancouver area, I can think of Sisters and Psychedelics. Um, I can think of Nectara as a community based in Kazlo, um, Soma Heart community, Soulful Somatic Community, MAPS Canada, uh, Conscious Mind Clinic, like all of these, a lot of um, organizations are cropping up with communities. So like go out and find community that resonates with you. And then, yeah, I think it's really important that we invite this connection that bridges these different spaces. And those are a few things that I'll say on that. Yeah. I'd love to follow that. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I think the one thing I'd really be curious to hear Ivana's uh, thoughts on as well is how can we collaborate? right really getting away from this scarcity mindset of like again i am the therapist i need to take all the clients on that is complete and utter bullshit and pardon my french um and like recognizing that actually the more um, appropriate response in my opinion is recognizing the nuance of all of our perspectives and actually through collectively contributing to the conversation we are actually creating a more a more diverse and rich understanding of yeah, this this work basically. Um, you know, one thing I'm really trying to work on in my business is actually yeah, uh, making sure to uh, support and actually uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, like advertise other facilitators as part of my resourcing, as as part of what I offer uh, to my client after their experience or before their experience or even on my website. Like have these published and actually um, very accessible for any clients who might come and view my work, right? I think that kind of mindset is something I'm really interested in cultivating as a community. I was reading an article recently on a challenge, a problem that is happening in many countries. Less and less people are going to church. So these absolutely gorgeous buildings are going up for sale. <laughs> or dramatically underutilized every single Sunday morning. I can think, and the second problem is many religious traditions are remarkably devoid of spirit. 
I can think of a solution to both of those problems. <laughs> I don't know if this is anything new to the conversation, but um, for a long time I was a, quite a lone wolf kind of lone wolf, lone wolfing it. It's really easy to do in the underground spaces, right? Um, and feeling isolated in that sense. And there was also this belief system that like, I don't want to steal, you know, it's the, the, there was a literally like a competition lens. I think there was one other practitioner, this was a couple years ago, where she was upset that like people were stealing her clients and her circle was going over to another circle. And it was like, oh, now I'm competition because we, we serve the same medicine and we sing songs and oh, oh, you know, and don't steal my song. This is my song that I sing to, during the medicine. It's like there was this very like ownership of it. Like only I'm the one who's allowed to sing these songs or do ceremony in this way. And it felt like I was impeding on other people's territory. So I had to really just like stay to myself and, and stay small. Um, and then in recent years, it's been like coming out of my own shell and seeing like cross-pollination is so much fun and being able to celebrate other practitioners and because recognizing that like, I'm not for everybody. I might trigger the shit out of people with my like bubbly weirdness, right? Some people might like the more stoic person or a male practitioner, right? So for me, it was recognizing that I can't be everything for everyone and I'm not supposed to, and people will come to me who are meant to come to me, and I can celebrate my sister and that her retreats are full and mine aren't filling, you know? Like there is that you know, little competitive person behind that's like, what is that person doing? And oh, I'm not good enough. But really letting that go and like celebrating um, and hell, yeah, cross-pollinating. If you've got a retreat, it's like, yeah, I'll share with my community as well. Um, so yeah, really celebrating our, each other and there was one more thing, but it's it's gone now. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that I'm about to say this shows how far I've come along in my healing journey. There is no healing outside of community. It's just not possible, right? And for the I remember when I first came across um, what, what was it? I was taking compassionate inquiry, and Gabor said, <laughs> "What did he say? Healing." Healing happens, I mean, uh, wounding happens in relation and healing also happens in relation and you can't heal outside of relationships. And I was so triggered by that. I was like, what are you talking about? I've been healing on my own for like 20 years and I'm perfectly fine. But then I realized, I'm like, well, yeah, but I hit a plateau for the last five or six years. And I was just sitting at that plateau and I didn't understand what was missing. What was missing was community. And it took me a long time to open up to this concept because I can be extremely closed off. And I was very fortunate that I had these people around me that helped me open that part of me up. And so it really helped me realize that healing can only happen in community. And to speak on the piece of competition, well, I did a talk yesterday on um, collaborate, collaborative competition in the psychedelic space. We want competition, so we don't want to discount it and say that shouldn't exist. But there's room for friendly competition where we show up in the best way we can. And if I get jealous of Aga, it's usually because I really want what she has, but I don't have to take it from her. She just showed me that she can do it. So that she also showed me in that sense that I can do it. So I just have to figure out either talking to her or figuring it out on my own how to get what she has. Right? And so just keeping in mind that there's a lot of work to be done <laughs> and 
there's a lot of space for all of us here. And so if we can just keep that in mind in everything we do, and how can we also lighten the load is by sharing the load, right? So if our clinic has these resources and we have the ability to share this with you, then why not share it? You know, I just don't see the downside to that. And so kind of creating that kind of environment as we move through the space, that if we just look at the amount of people that need our help, that need these resources, there's more work to be done than any one of us can do. Um, even collectively, there's probably more work to be done than all of us can do banded together. So there's no reason to kind of be sticklers in, it, in all of this. And how do we create more communities, opening up our spaces, having these conversations, coming together, even working through if you are jealous or if you are having these, you know, resistance towards someone, get curious about it. This is what I do quite a bit because, of course, I feel jealous. Of course, I feel all these negative emotions but then I get curious about it, what's going on for me? And then one step I started doing is actually approaching that person and being honest with them, be like, this is what was going on in my head. And I just wanna share it with you so we can make it out in the open and then we talk about it. And I realized, oh, they were feeling the exact same way about me. You know, they saw me as a threat or they saw me in a particular light. And then you get to have these conversations, you have these kumbaya moments, which are really wonderful. Um, so yeah, I think I might've gone out on a tangent, but. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I remember the thing. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't so much about, uh, anyhow. So what has helped me shift that mindset into community and recognizing that I'm not everyone for, I'm not everything for everyone is I, I really speak to spirit. If I'm, wor I'm working with the mushrooms and I say, okay, mushrooms, send me the people who will resonate with my work the people who are doing the work and who will actually benefit from working with you, and people that I love being around. And I can trust that I, I surrender my trust to this beautiful force that has been guiding my life in a beautiful way ever since I started working with them, that I'm always going to be provided, I'm always going to be taken care, care of when my work is coming from a place of love, from the heart, in collaboration with community, because when the, the jealousy and the, all that, that that's the mind, right? That's, that's the past, right? So that, that's always my prayer and I, I, I share it um, because it works. Really amazing people come into your life. <laughs> Can you ask the question again one more time? Yeah, um, how do we, let's see here. I don't even think there was a question. There wasn't a question, okay. I'm just gonna tangent then yeah. for a moment. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I'm, I'm noticing like a little bit of anxiousness around bringing this forward, so I think it's, it's probably good that I do. Um, yeah, I'm curious also about accessibility to, to psychedelics as a, a point for creating community, basically, in, in this space. And um, yeah, just recognizing perhaps a trend that I am seeing, and, and obviously it's just one perspective, but uh, psychedelics being increasingly expensive to, you know, to experience, right? And it maybe being only accessible to a certain um, level of economic status, right? Um, as well as, I think, a really important cult, uh, point, P wow, important piece uh, for me that I'm very much still learning as well is like how do we create diverse and equitable inclusive spaces um, you know speaking from my experience the psychedelic spaces and the wellness spaces I occupy are predominantly white and just being aware of that and what does it look like to create a space that actually does um, include you know BIPOC folk and what does it look like actually to engage in those conversations and create a safe space in psychedelics as well as community in this way and I don't have the answers but it's something I'm, I'm very much wanting to have more conversation around and address as best as I can as a 
privileged white male. <laughs> That's definitely a conversation to have because when I first started out in the healing world, people are like, what, you're charging money? That should be free. Uh, I hated that. It was like, oh, but like, you know, presence is so taxing on the nervous system that like I need to go take care of myself. And, you know, a, a session, if I'm charging minimum wage or even $100 an hour, it's like, like how, how do we put a fair amount of money on a, on a modality that, you know, it's not just that hourly time. It's all the experience that you had to become a good practitioner and then all the self-care that you have to do after like really intense, you know, five, eight hour journey, some of these medicines, it's, it's yeah, you know, journeys are thousands of dollars in some cases. Um, and so that, that's, so how do we make it affordable but yet still honor the amount of effort and work it takes? Thank you everyone for tuning in to this episode. I hope you found it valuable. If you would like to hear more conversations like this, please make sure to subscribe to our podcast and to our email newsletter. If you like this sort of discussion, I would also encourage you to check out our Substack for written content that focuses on similar topics. You can find this on the resources section of our website. If you are based in Vancouver, you can also attend our next expansion seminar in person as well to engage in the community. And I really hope to see you there. Until next time, wishing you blessings and love.